Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. We are going through um, a series on the ABCs of in-town. What are we about? Why do we exist? What are we trying to do? Who are we? Those kinds of questions. And we're looking at our mission statement each and every week, um, and then choosing some passages that come out of the book of Matthew that sort of help us reflect upon those things. And this morning, we're looking at the gift of imperfection. And In Town's mission statement says that we are a community seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. And you notice seeking is bolded, and that's because each and every week we're taking one of the primary words in the mission statement and talking about what that means to in town. And so we spent three weeks talking about community, and now we're talking about seeking, being in process, the gift of imperfection, and how that allows us to be a part of a church like this. Let me intro this by reading our gospel reading. This is Matthew chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will will be filled. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me one more time? Lord, would you meet us in this place? Meet us where we are. Some of us come into this room wondering if you are real. And Lord, I pray that to us you would reveal yourself. Others have deep wounds. We've been hurt by a friend, a parent, maybe even a church leader. And we need your comfort because we find it odd that we're back here in church again this morning. Some of us are carrying around anxieties about the week to come, and we need your calming presence. Others of us carrying around shame and regret about last week, and we need your mercy. For all of us this morning, we pray that you would let us see Jesus tell us his good news, his wonderful news again. Let us see His beauty. Let us be drawn into His message and His mission. Let us in His story enthrall us and move us into the lives of others as individuals, as families, as friends, as co-workers, and certainly not the least of which as the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1992, if you're my age or maybe a little bit younger, you'll remember a very memorable Gatorade commercial And it was about Michael Jordan. It was, I want to be like Mike. And it showed Michael Jordan at the height of his career, kind of joking around with his teammates and shooting baskets and then playing with kids on the on the basketball court. And all of these kids were trying to make moves like Michael Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan. And uh, that would apply, wouldn't it? Uh, and trying to make baskets like Michael Jordan. And there was this very catchy tune over the top of it. But it was effective as a commercial. I want to be like Mike because literally millions of, million, millions of boys and men wanted to be like Mike. Now, he turned 50 years old three years ago. And to celebrate, 
And to indicate what a game-changing athlete and entrepreneur he was, ESPN did a series of articles and video shorts and best-of moments. And they even had an MJ50 logo that they would run at the bottom of the screen, even when it was something else that was on the screen, just to let people know that upcoming this weekend, we're celebrating Michael Jordan's 50th birthday. He didn't retire. He had retired years ago. He didn't die He was just having a birthday, and they spent days celebrating. Now, what's Mike up to now? Well, his current net worth is $1.1 billion, the first NBA star ever to earn that much money, not simply by playing, but also because he is the head of the huge Jordan brand at Nike. He has a jet painted like a shoe. Now, it's a lot cooler than it sounds. He's the owner and chairman of an NBA team that's in the playoffs this year. He employs dozens of employees and contractors in his own company. Now, in case anyone would misunderstand who's at the head of this company, who's in charge, they only have to recall the code names that are given to them by a private security team. Este is Venom, George is Butler, Yvette is Harmony, and Jordan is Yahweh. Yahweh, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. It's not exactly this sort of nickname that fosters meekness. But behind all of that hubris, there's just a man. There's just a human being with anxieties and concerns about his legacy and trying to find meaning in life now that his primary talent is, that is, playing basketball, is no longer of use to him. And in 2009, he gave his Hall of Fame speech, and he called the game of basketball his refuge, the place where I've gone when I've needed to find comfort and peace. But he doesn't have that anymore. The author of a long ESPN article says this, there's a fable about returning Roman generals who rode in the victory parades through the streets of the capital, and a slave stood behind them whispering in their ears, all glory is fleeting. Nobody does that for professional athletes. Jordan couldn't have known that the closest he'd get to immortality was during that final walk off the court. All that can happen in the days and years that follow is for the shining monument he built to be chipped away, eroded. His self-esteem has always been, as he said, says, tied directly to the game. And without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? And for the past 10 years since his retiring, for the third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions and distance. Now, it's difficult to feel sorry for him, right? Because not only because he sounds, I don't know, a little bit self-absorbed, but it's also because despite so many testimonies to the contrary, it's hard to imagine people living in ultimate luxury, inordinately successful, being the best, absolute best at their chosen field. It's hard to imagine them being unsettled and unhappy and anxious and having to call themselves Yahweh to remind people around them who they are. Well, Jesus is preaching about the good news, wonderful news, blessedness, peace that comes from the opposite direction, the opposite 
realm that most of us naturally assume it comes from because we think success, wealth, fame, or at least recognition, if not fame, intelligence, long life, victory in competition. And Jesus says, no, look to the other end of the spectrum. He's preaching good news to the humble, to the meek, to the poor, to people in mourning, to the spiritually bankrupt. It's these people who have an insight into the way things really are and the way things will be. In fact, they have an understanding of what it means to be truly human, that the people on the winning edge of the bell curve normally don't. Now, let's address, first of all, three false starts to continue our our sports metaphors and analogies here. Three false starts for the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, because we're going to circle back around to these in the coming weeks, and we need to see what the Sermon on the Mount is not and what the Beatitudes are not before we can talk about what they are. So, first of all, Jesus did not walk up on this mountain to teach people how to behave properly. Of course, there are implications to our ethical life and the way that we choose to follow Him and go about our daily life. But the blessings don't come by try real hard to be like this. He is instead bringing good news to people who are like this. These are the people who experience, who can see Jesus for who He really is, who can experience the peace of the kingdom. Now, secondly, he's not analyzing the world as it is. He's making a prophetic announcement. If he was giving just an analysis, we could say fairly decisively that Jesus simply is wrong. Because why? Mourners often do go uncomforted. The meek don't seem to be inheriting the earth anywhere that I look around. And the poor in spirit are often dejected and overlooked. He's not analyzing the world as it is primarily. He's making a prophetic announcement of how the world can be, should be, and will ultimately be. And then thirdly, the mistake that we need to avoid because this is true. In other words, there's some future component of this that Christians then reason, well, he's talking about the promised life in heaven. That's what's in view here. And he does say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But he also says that the meek shall inherit what? The earth. So it's not an entirely future vision, and it's not a spiritual, distant type of thing only. So which is it? Well, he tells us a few verses later in the part of the sermon that we recite each week, we pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're praying there is that the life of heaven, the reality that exists in heaven now, where God reigns fully as king, will become the life of the world, that in some way will be brought down into the present, into the now, into the earth, transforming the earth as a place of beauty and delight and fullness, everything that it was meant to be. And what Jesus is doing here is He's summoning His his community to recognize that He is the beginning of that promised future that everyone has been waiting for. He's an intrusion of the future into the present, and He is a down payment on the way things will be. 
The kingdom of God is being announced, and He is inviting people to belong. So what? Why does He address these people? Well, when He makes these announcements, then as today, the rich, the powerful, the satisfied, the comfortable, the kind of people that we normally long to be are the people who miss it, the people who can't see it, the people who don't want it. But it's the meek, it's the spiritually poor, it's the mourners, it's the hungry for righteousness. They're the people who get it. They're the people who see. These first four Beatitudes are not the behavioral qualifications for entrance into the kingdom. They're not the ethical qualities of the right kind of person. In fact, they're really not about possessing something primarily. These people lack something. There's a loss. There's a want. There's a hole. There's a lack. First of all, poor in spirit. Well, being poor is lacking some vital resource. In most cases, money. Lacking in power. And these people recognize, naturally, because of their condition, that there are problems in the world that they can't solve. There are problems about their own life that they can't fully address. But he says not only poor, but poor in spirit, in one particular realm. While we may have psychological, social, emotional, physical needs that are real, and we shouldn't gloss over those. He's talking about one particular area of being poor, and that is in spirit. That is spiritually poor. And this person says that my deepest problems, the deepest challenges that I encounter in a daily basis are beyond my power to answer, and they're not just physical, uh, social, emotional, psychological, but they're spiritual. I'm unable to save myself from what ails me. And in fact, friends, these are the courageous people, the people that are willing to admit that they don't have it altogether, who own up to their own limitations, their humanity, and say, I need help. And this is difficult because we spend so much time and effort, don't we, trying to not need help, or at least pretend that way and posture ourselves that way from the male driver who doesn't want to ask for directions. I've never had any experience with that. Or the person at work who makes a mistake and does everything possible to cover over their tracks or to shift the blame to someone else because they can't be seen as imperfect. But secondly, he talks about mourners. And this one's a bit more tricky because it's not, in cle- clearly, uh, not entirely clear whether Jesus means primarily those who grieve over their personal individual sin or those who are in some sort of general mourning because of a circumstantial loss. Or thirdly, perhaps those who are just generally saddened by the state of affairs, the state of the world as it is and the mess that humanity has made of it. Now, it's probably a little bit of all three, but number three is the one that I think is best in this context because the announcement that Jesus is making is the intrusion of God into the world as it is and answering the questions not simply of individual spiritual brokenness, but the brokenness of the whole world. 
But whichever one we choose, or all three, the commonality that is most important to our topic is that a mourner is someone who lacks something. In this case, they lack comfort and the ability to gain consolation from the world as it exists as it is. And they're forced to look outside of themselves for comfort. And therefore, they are able to see when comfort is offered. They are able to get it when the answer is given. So poor in spirit, mourning, and then also blessed are those who meek or who are meek. And these are the people that once you see that your problems are beyond you, you could despair, you could get angry, you could just be immobilized. The world is too powerful for me, and so I'm just going to go into a shell. I'm going to go into my hole. Or we could just become people who blame everyone else for what's going on. Or meet people are those people who are humble enough to say to God, Lord, I need your help. I need your solution. I need your provision because I can't find it on my own. I can't make my world better. I can't make the world better in my own strength. You see, these people, meek people, humble people, understand that in order to receive the blessedness of the kingdom, you have to first turn from your own self-sufficiency and your own strategies of solving your problems. But turn to what? And this is key. This is important. And we need to slow down a bit here because here we're really getting to the essence of the gospel in many ways, if not the very center of the spiritual idea of the Bible. It is not those who hunger and thirst after blessedness or happiness who are blessed. Because we see the unalterable law of the universe is those who seek happiness. Those who hunger after happiness and blessedness never get it. Ask Michael Jordan. Insofar as you make your happiness the very center of your quest, it will always elude you. It will always be just out of reach. When you make the center of your life anything besides God, it will end up confounding you and oftentimes destroying you and destroying the people around you. Being hungry, being thirsty is a recognition of a lack. It's a recognition of something that you don't have And Jesus is telling us here that the holiest of people are those without something, those who have despaired of their own holiness, their own ability to find or achieve righteousness on their own. The holiest of people are saying, I don't have that. I need it. Jesus, would you provide it? These are the people who seek grace, who are primed to notice the intrusion of of grace, the intrusion of God when it appears. And this is the blessedness. This is the gift of imperfection. The gift of imperfection means that the way down is the way up. Or as Parker Palmer says in your bulletin, holiness means embracing brokenness as an integral part of your life. Is this what Jesus' hearers would have been expecting? I don't think so. 
I think they would have expected a Jewish rabbi going up to this mount to preach, that he would have been giving ethical direction. Here's how to get your lives in order. It's a call to righteous living. Here's the type of spiritual pursuit and performance that leads to holiness. That would have been what they would have been expecting, and that's what many of us often expect of Jesus and what we demand of our own lives and how we interpret our own spirituality. Get it together. Pursue. Perform. But he says, blessed aren't the dedicated and the disciplined, but the poor in spirit, those who have hit rock bottom those who have come to the end of themselves, those whose restless striving and working has never gotten them what they want, but has left them feeling more anxious and more worried about their status with others, with God, with themselves. And in this way, you can be literally poor and find this out, or you can be the best basketball player who has ever lived and be poor in spirit. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you qualify as spiritually poor. Life hasn't gone how you expected it to do. And there are major episodes in your past that you're not proud of. You've confronted your brokenness and neediness, and you're trying to take that step of letting people into your story and entering into a community where you can be healed, maybe a church like in town where you can't hide, and these words sound so comforting to you, that these are the people that belong. It's the poor, the broken, the needy, and you're standing right there, and you're thinking, could that be true? But if you read a little bit further, you find Jesus saying to us and to you, be perfect or holy, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, and it stops you in your tracks. And you're unwilling to take that step further because in human relationships, when you put yourself on the line, when you out yourself, that's when you get hurt. Be perfect, therefore, as your, whole, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And maybe you've been to churches or institutions where that's been the expectation. And when you get out of line, you're thrust right back in. You're punished. You're told. Or maybe... You're on the edge of faith, and this whole idea is the thing that keeps you from pursuing Jesus. You think, well, I've got enough guilt in my life. I've got enough shame. I've got enough pressure on me at work. I'm not eager to enter into a community where God's going to pile on. I don't need any more pressure. Well, Jesus has good in fact, wonderful news, because when Jesus talks about being poor in spirit, meek, mourning, hungering for righteousness, and then later being perfect and holy, these things are not contradictory. They're not. Those of us who've read the, the book of the month for April, shameless plug for the book of the month club, we, get to, we got to talk about this last Tuesday night that holiness, true holiness, isn't the result of ceaseless striving. It's not a result of your performance and how much of a go-getter you are. It's not an achievement or a possession that you have somehow earned. It is a recognition of a lack. 
It's a recognition of your own humanity and your own imperfection and being willing to deal with that and put that on the table and say, God, would you heal me? Would you make me whole? The book that we read, Wholeheartedness, Chuck DeGroat asked, what if holiness was more like wholeness? What if spiritual maturation was not so much about ascent but descent, about falling into holiness? What if purity was about union? That means being in relationship with God and not about separation. What if holiness was available to all rather than the select few who are the dedicated, the devoted, and the disciplined? That sounds pretty good, right? But we still have to deal with this verse that says, be holy, be perfect, because God is perfect. Well, Chuck cites here Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian and the pastor in the 20th century, and he says and works with some different scholars that make this actually a a viable option, not just what he wants it to say. And he says this word perfect or holy should best be translated whole. Be whole, therefore, as your Father, as your heavenly Father is whole. In other words, being a Christian, being in the kingdom, understanding who Jesus is, is not the being a Christian and yet still trying to achieve, still trying to prove themselves, to rest in one's performance, but is willing to say of them what the gospel says about them, that they are far more broken and sinful than they ever dared think, but they are far more loved and accepted than they ever dared dream. The poor in spirit, the meek, the mourners, the hungry and thirsty for righteous are able to say that and say it fully and acknowledge it. And they're not afraid when someone points out a lack in their lives. They don't get defensive and prickly because they already know it's true. Maybe you're petrified this morning to be really, to be seen for who you truly are. And you exist on the edges of our community because that's where it's safe, frankly. When you enter into the center, it's dangerous and it's messy because you can get hurt because this community, like all others, is made up of real human beings. On the edges, you can hide your past scars and your hurts and your failures. But friends, you can't really be healed without community, without finding a place where God's grace is so prevalent that you're allowed to be who you are. You're allowed to be imperfect. You're allowed to be in process. But that's not a threat to other people because they see themselves in that very same process. Friends, the the good news is that Jesus already sees all of you. The Heavenly Father's perfection is not something to be afraid of or cautious of because it's in His perfection, in His holiness, that He sends Jesus to go find you in your brokenness and in your perfection. He doesn't wait until you get it all worked out and you come to Him in His perfection and in His holiness. He seeks you out. He decides to send His Son to find you in your hiddenness, to find you on those edges of the community where you're trying to be self-protective, understandably so, but you're afraid to take a step in. And Jesus says, come on in. He sees you already. The gift of imperfection is that through it, you get to meet Jesus. 
because His grace always flows downhill. His mercy pools at the bottom end of the bell curve. Michael Jordan says, how can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me? That is his anxiety about his status, his recognition that he's getting old, his recognition that his statue will one day erode. How can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me? How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? That's pretty honest, right? He's very close. We find this difficult to say just in a group of close friends or in a small group. But friends, the reality is is that we fall into wholeness. We fall into holiness. And it's those types of recognitions that begin to get us there. What am I going to do with the next 20 years with these thoughts that are plaguing me, that have always plagued me? Will I still be here in 20 years? That's the person that's right on the edge, that is poor enough in spirit to reach out for the hand of God. We fall into the life of God. We fall into relationship with Him when every other aid and crutch and ego support is taken out and knocked out from under us, not by seeking to be Yahweh, but by giving ourselves over to His grace and His care, because Yahweh God came in the person of Jesus saying, where are you? Where are you? The same thing that God said when Adam and Eve ran from Him and left the garden and are afraid. He doesn't come with condemnation. He comes with a question, where are you? He senses that relational lack and wants to be reunited. Do you sense that? Do you sense that relational lack in your life? Where are you? It's the call to come out of hiding, that God isn't looking to recruit, recruit the spiritually elite, but the spiritually broken, the spiritually poor, and to begin to change them and renew them. Will you continue to hide behind all of your posturing and all of your pretending and all of the masks that you wear, which are essentially the fig leaves of today? Will you come out of your perfectionism and your performance and your pride? Will you come out of hiding and thus be free? That's the question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some people are here this morning, and it's been an act of extreme courage just to get out of bed and make their way here because of some of past experiences or because they're going through what may be clinical issues, clinical depression, clinical anxiety, social anxieties, personality difficulties. And it's an act of heroism that they are here this morning. I pray that they would find this place to be a church that is open to them and welcome to them, and not only open, but willing to learn from them, because we all have areas and pockets of brokenness in our lives. And I pray for those of us who have experienced a bit of the richness of our world, success, admiration, that we would see ourselves in those people who have very evident, very tangible brokenness in our lives and let them be a model. Lord, I pray that because of the gospel, because of the meal that we're about to eat together in a few moments, that we would look across the table, look across the pew and recognize each other's humanity and recognize each other's dignity and that we would take time to encourage one another 
to welcome one another in their imperfections. And Lord, let our imperfections lead us to You. Even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.